Her heart swelled to the point that she could no longer contain the joy. She was exhausted, preparing for them to leave, and and the sun had not even given the light by which they must travel. The discussion last night, well, let's just call it what it was. The argument last night was unforeseen to her. It didn't make sense. Why? Why now? Why would he choose to take her precious son from her for a two-day's journey? He's so young. Surely, surely other fathers don't take their sons, their wives' only son from them to offer to God a sacrifice. Surely the father can sacrifice on behalf of the entire household. And why? Why Mariah? Why must he take him so far away? Her anger flared at his mere suggestion of it. No, it's not safe. He may get sick. You may run out of food. Bandits may come and attack you, or a harlot may impose herself upon this innocent young lad. No, he is not going. Now, she knew deep within her heart that he loved their son, that he would never do anything to harm their son. I mean, after all, they had waited so long for this child, 25 years to be exact, and during those 25 years, she had doubted much more than he. It seemed that the older she got, the greater her doubts became. He, on the other hand, it seemed the longer the time span between the fulfillment of the prophet promise, his faith grew all that much more. And now they had enjoyed these last several years with their promise, Isaac. So no, there was no way that she would let him jeopardize their happiness just to bond with her only son some 45 miles away. No way. And then she saw something on his face that she had never seen before. His, his, his veins began to bulge in his neck. Beads of sweat formed on his forehead. His his cheeks were red, the color of red beets. And his eyes wild and glaring. And he pointed his old twisty finger up to the sky and he said, You have no voice in this matter. I'm taking our son. God has spoken. He turned then on his heel and walked away. Her anger turned into confusion As she meditated on his words, God has spoken? God has spoken. That's it. He heard from the Lord. We learned our lesson long ago not to argue with God. So surely that's it. God has spoken. And he wants Abraham to take Isaac to bless him, to show him signs and wonders, to prove that he shall be the one to bring forth the descendants of Abraham and Sarah as numerous as the stars in the sky. Well, why didn't that old fool just tell me last night? It would have saved great argument. Even though it still seemed dangerous to her, she realized that God had spoken. Then who was she to stop him? And as they left early, early, early that morning, she couldn't help but notice something. Where was the sacrifice? I mean, they had the wood. I mean, they, they, they had the fire. But where was the sacrifice? And as she closed the door behind her, she couldn't get out of that, that out of her mind. Where 
was the sacrifice. And little did she know that what was about to happen on Mount Moriah would change everything. Not only for Abraham and Sarah and their descendants, but for the nation of Israel as well. And guess what? For all mankind. For you and for me. And I'd like us to look at that this morning in Genesis chapter 22. Please turn there with me to Genesis chapter 22. This is one of those passages of Scripture that every parent in here is going to cringe at as we read through it. It's one of those passages that seem to be unreal. It seems to be fictional. But this is an actual event that happened to a man named Abraham who God promised to be a blessing to many nations. He promised him to have many descendants uh, to make a great nation out of him and to provide for him land flowing with milk and honey. and, and now they have Isaac. And it's, it's been a time of peace. Because notice how verse 1 starts in Genesis 22. After these things. After these things. After the whole mess of, of what has gone on before. Uh, Abraham lying twice. Making his wife lie twice about her real relationship with him. Uh, uh, giving in to her doubt with Hagar and Ishmael. And that whole story setting up a covenant between Abimelech and, and, and himself. And, and now after all these things, a, a time period goes by. It's been this time where honestly Sarah and Abraham have enjoyed because it's for a moment a time of peace. But then God asks of them this inconceivable, unthinkable thing. Notice verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And we're thinking, okay, sounds good. But notice the next statement. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? Parents, do you cringe? Think about it. What if God told you to do this? Oh, my word. And then you add on top of that the idea, the thought, the notion, the truth that Isaiah, or Isaac rather, is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the one through whom God is going to fulfill his promise. God has already said that. And now God is telling him, you take him and you offer him up as a burnt offering into a place in the land of Moriah that I will show you. And we're going, it's inconceivable. Right? For those of you that know the Princess Bride. Inconceivable. I'm trying to do the lisp. And it's inconceivable, at least on three different levels. First of all, this is Abraham's son. And, and God seems to, to just kind of drill that in and twist that into Abraham's heart when he says, take your son. Now, he could have left it at there. Take your son and, and go to a land in Moriah of which I will show you, a place in the land there of which I will show you. But instead he says, take your son. And then he emphasizes it. Take your only son. And then he calls him by name Isaac. And then he says, whom you love. It's like God is just pointing everything out that could be pointed out at how horrible of an idea this is your son your only son Isaac whom you love take him kill him 
And we're going, no, it doesn't make sense. Secondly, the, the second level that this is inconceivable in is this truth. A burnt offering was known then, and especially to the Old Testament readers of this time, as an offering of complete surrender. When you burnt a burnt offering, you burnt all of it. It was a complete thing. It was, it was something, not only did you, you shed the blood of that animal on the altar, but it was burnt up completely. It was a complete surrender. God received it completely as a, as a sacrifice pleasing to his nostrils. In fact, Noah offered a burnt offering when they got onto dry land, and it was pleasing to God. It's a complete sacrifice. What we're saying here is that Abraham is to take his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loves, and completely destroy him. Inconceivable. The third level, though, is this goes against the grain of everything we know about God, right? Do you, I mean, are you with me? We know in, in the New Testament that God doesn't just show love, that God is love. And so in our minds, as a New Testament reader, we think, this, this is not God. What's he doing here? This, this doesn't make sense. This is incomprehensible. This is, not, this is not right. But notice what it says. God tested Abraham. This is a test. Now, let me, let me make sure you understand this, beloved. There is a distinction that we must make between temptation and a test God is testing Abraham he's not tempting Abraham God is testing often God will do that he will do that in the Old Testament he will do it in the New Testament he will test people's faith will they really trust him will they really move forward in faith and do those things that he has called them to do he tests their faith but he does not tempt them to sin James is very clear on that. James chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Let no one say when he's being tempted, basically that this comes by God, because God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. So there is a distinction. This is a test. And maybe today you would say, Pastor, I'm going through a test right now. He's not tempting me to sin, but he is testing my faith. Maybe today you're sitting here and God is testing you in your marriage relationship. Maybe as a husband, he's telling you, you love your wife unconditionally. And we go, but she doesn't deserve it. And he goes, I know, it's unconditional. You love her unconditionally. Maybe you're a wife and you're sitting here and God is testing your faith saying, I don't care whether he's right, mostly he's wrong, but, but you respect him, you honor him, you submit to him. And maybe God is testing you in your marriage relationship today. Maybe God is testing you in sharing your faith with somebody. Maybe there's been a name of someone who is on your heart and has been for the last many weeks, maybe months, maybe years. And you've never told them about Jesus. And Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is, is kind of twisting that in your heart, telling you, this is what you need to do. I'm testing you in this. Will you follow through? Will you act in faith and tell them about Jesus? Some of you maybe are in this, this, this spot where financially things are tight and the first thing you want to do is quit tithing. You want to quit giving money to your church. And, and, and the Lord is testing you. Will you in faith continue to give back to him the money that is already his? And he's saying, 
Here's a test. Will you follow? Will you, will you go along with it? Will you do this? I don't know what it might be, but perhaps you're here and God is testing you today like he's testing Abraham in our passage. And if so, I want us to see what that looks like. First of all, notice this inconceivable test, this inconceivable command that, that God gives to Abraham. But notice what Abraham does. Verse 3 is probably the most outstanding, amazing verse to me in this whole chapter. Well, that's not, that's not true because the ending verses are amazing. Maybe it's along with the ending part of this chapter. This is amazing. Notice what verse 3 says. So Abraham rose early in the morning and ran to Nineveh <laughs> or, or anywhere else. No, he rose up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place with which God had told him. Obedience. You see, here is a man who has failed. Here is a man who has been tested before and failed miserably. Can you relate? I can relate. I am a man who has been tested by God before and have failed. I'll tell you that right off. Abraham is a man who was tested before, failed. We have it recorded in the Bible for us. Some people like to look at biblical characters and think, oh, they are saints. There's nothing wrong with them. They're perfect. I can't relate to them at all. No, no, no. If you look closely in the Scripture, we realize that everyone in the Bible is broken and fallible, and everyone in the Bible is used by God according to His grace and His mercy, you see. So here's Abraham. He's failed, but not this time. This time, in faith, he obeys early. Notice the term early. He didn't wait for a while. He didn't sit around drinking his coffee thinking, should I or shouldn't I? He had determined right when God told him what he was going to do. And so he rises early in the morning, and, and they travel, and they, and they go to this place, Moriah, the area of Moriah. And, and, and as they get there, what we, what we happen to see here is this other incredible thing. See, see, they get to the place three days, 45 miles from Beersheba, where they were, to Moriah, the land of Moriah. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. 45 miles took a good solid two days. And so it wasn't until the third day of travel that Abraham saw the place and he recognized it. And, and God must have revealed it to him, but he tells his two young men, you stay here. Notice what he says. In fact, this is pretty amazing. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And what? Come again to you. What? What in the world is he talking about? We will come again to you? No, 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 no. Abraham must have misunderstood God. He must not have understood the command because now he's talking about coming back. See, it's a little hint of the faith of, of Abraham. He's learned it. Again, he wasn't always perfect in it, but he's learned it. Now he's telling these young men, we will come back to you. And, and, and so these young men watch. And, and I imagine the scene something like this. They, they stood watching in wonder. The, the, the white uh, thinning hair of the old man, man blowing in the breeze. And in one hand, he has the stick of fire. The other around this youth, his son, 
his only son Isaac, whom he, he loves. And, and they go walking off up this hill, this rocky hill. And as they walked off, occasionally the, the, the sun would hit just right and, and they could see the glint of the sharp knife in Abraham's, Abraham's belt. And they must have thought, what's going on here? Where's the sacrifice? And so Abraham and, and Isaac take off this, this mountain known as Mount Moriah. And, 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 and they get going and... and, and, and all of a sudden, we have another tug on our heart. As a dad of only one son, I have two girls who are wonderful, but I only have one son. So the idea of your only son, I, I can relate in that, that way. And, and now, as they're walking up, the, the boy Isaac speaks. And if we were to read through this and just read it because we have to read it for our quiet time, we might miss this. But notice the tug. Notice what Moses is doing here as he's writing this down. He's helping us to realize how difficult this is because as they go along, all of a sudden, Isaac, who in the story so far has been silent, he speaks. And at first he speaks two words that should tug at every parent in here. He says, my father... Stop and think. My father? That is, those are words of, of, of trust, adoring trust. My father. He's looking to him as his daddy. My father. And, and so what does Abraham do? He answers. He responds to him the same way he responded when the, when the Lord first commanded him to do this. He says, here I am. Only he adds these words. My son my father, my son, oh, how can he do this? How can he put his son to death on that altar and burn him up? How is this possible? We're, we're wrenched with, with this concern, aren't we? Or is it just me? Okay. I'm actually sweating a little bit because I'm so concerned. But, but they go up, and, and, and so the question is asked, Notice with me. He said in verse, uh, middle of verse 7, he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? <laughs> what everybody else has been thinking, Isaac asks, Where's the lamb? Dude, dad, my father, what's going on here? The wood's here, I'm carrying it on my back. You got the fire and the knife, but there's no lamb. Where's the lamb? And notice words of faith, how Abraham responds. He said, God, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went on up that hill. They went on up that mountain. This little conversation given to us so that we would recognize how horrific this command is. And they get to the place, and, and, and verse 9 is amazing. When they got to that place, they built an altar. They put the wood on the altar, and then it says, Abraham bound Isaac. He bound him up. He tied him up. Now, now I looked to see how old Isaac must have been. And, and he could have been, based on some hints in Scripture, Scripture doesn't really tell us, based on hints in Scripture, he could have been anywhere from a teenager all the way up to his early 30s. 
And, and, and I got to be honest with you, if I were in Isaac's position, whether I was a teenager or 20 or 30, I would be kicking and screaming, you ain't tying me up, my father. So there's some faith in Isaac that's got to be understood here and recognized. Abraham bound up Isaac, put him on that altar, and then he does this thing that is just, I I don't understand it. He gets the knife out of his pocket, and he raises his arm, and we're going, whoa, 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 Abraham, what are you doing? You're not really going to go through with this, are you? How could you do this? And quite honestly, I'll be, I'll be totally truthful. I don't know that I could. I honestly don't know that I could. And what that says is one thing about me. My faith is not as great as Abraham's was. But it also says something about Abraham, doesn't it? He came to the point in his life when his trust in God was much, much greater than sacrificing his only son whom he loved. Wow. And so he's standing there, knife up in the air. He's ready to come down with fourths, and he's going to do it. We know he's going to do it. And then all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham. And it's twice. Twice. I don't know why I did that. Twice. Abraham, Abraham. The angel is stopping him right then and there. And he says this. Notice in verse uh, uh, 10. Um, Excuse me, 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, notice, here I am. The same way he responded to God in the first place, the same way he responded to his son, and now he's responding to this angel of the Lord who we will talk about in a moment, and he says this, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. An angel of the Lord, and and this is for another sermon, but I believe this is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ that is speaking here. An angel of Yahweh. An angel of the Lord, which sometimes in the Old Testament really means Jesus Christ has revealed Himself in the Old Testament. And here is an angel of the Lord. I say Jesus Christ and is saying, listen, now we know you fear God. Why? Because you have not withheld your only son. Did you know, by the way, I think I failed to mention this at the beginning, the word son is used 14 times in these 19 verses. Son. It's an important key in this. You have not withheld your only son from me, so I know you fear God. And he stops him, and we're going, yay, God! Thank you, God! Yay! Aren't you? Man, you're a tough congregation this morning. <laughs> we are. We're, we're thanking the Lord. There's relief. Oh, Moses, has, he's passed the test. He doesn't have to kill Isaac. And we're going, yes, yes, yes! And then what happens is... God does provide. Remember what Abraham told Isaac? Oh, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And now we see it happening. Verse 
Uh, uh, verse 13, And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. In place of his son. As a substitute for his son. His son no longer needed to die because now there is a substitute, someone who will take his place, who will die in his stead. Wink, wink, hint, hint. Does that sound familiar, brothers and sisters? See, here is this substitute ram that is in the thicket, caught there by accident. Absolutely not. God provided. God will provide. And so what does Abraham do? He, he names the place, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for... Right? We sing that song. Jehovah, that's what this is. Jehovah Jireh. He called the place Jehovah Jireh. My Lord will provide. And he goes on, and, and, and that's why, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, what you and I need to understand is, yes, Jehovah Jireh means my Lord will provide. But it can also mean something else. Some of your Bibles might have a little footnote here. And it, it says it could also mean my Lord sees or will be seen. Now, why is this significant? Let me explain. Did you know that in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1, Solomon begins to build the temple? Guess where? On Mount Moriah. It says, 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. The same place where, where Abraham named it, my Lord shall provide, or my Lord shall be seen. <laughs> Am I the only one that thinks this is good stuff? Here is this amazing truth. On that place that Abraham was about ready to sacrifice his only son and a substitutionary ram was placed there instead is the same place that a temple was built. A temple in Jerusalem. King Solomon built it. And guess what? It's in that place that substitutionary sacrifices were made. <laughs> this is good. And it's in that same place that not only does the Lord provide for His people, but it's in that same place that His presence dwells. It's that same place where my Lord is seen. Yeah, God, right? This is so cool. Isn't this amazing how this is connected? See, and what we come to understand is as God speaks now, as Jesus speaks in the angel again, he speaks a second time, and I want us to not overlook this. Many people, many, many preachers, I would say, even overlook what comes next. But what comes next is the most important part. Because what comes next not only connects what happens here to the nation of Israel, but connects with what happens there and in the nation of Israel to you and to me. We're in this. Do you believe me? Notice what God says. I'm 
need to get to my notes here because I don't want to miss any good thing here. Notice what God says, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, probably after they were done sacrificing that ram and, and, and burning it all up. He called again a second time from heaven, and Jesus said, I believe it's Jesus, he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. In other words, he reiterates, in fact, I would say to you, he ratifies the covenant that he made back at chapter 12, verse 1 with Abraham. Promise of him being a nation. Promise of land. And a promise that all the nations would be blessed through him is now ratified by God. So here's here's what we learn. God provides when we, in faith, act. God provides when we, in faith, act. Abraham acted in faith. We saw it. We pointed it out. How could he do this? He had faith. Why was he able to follow through? Because of his faith. Either one, if either one was missing, he would not really have true faith. If either one was missing, God would not ratify his covenant with Abraham. Both are there. His faith compelled him to act in obedience. How is it that he could take a knife and hover over his only son, ready to come down hard on him? Because his faith in God led him to such action. See, God provides when we in faith act. When we act. Here's here's what I want to say. Are you ready? Too many times in America, I think, we have become Christians that don't act on our faith. What does James say? Faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. It's dead. In fact, James goes on and he uses this very same passage of Scripture. And in James chapter... uh, uh, Not Hebrews. I'm sorry. James chapter 1 and verse 22... Uh, Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Faith must be active for it to be legit. Abraham had faith and it led him to act in absolute, total obedience. How's your faith? How's my faith? See, the blessing that God provides here is first of all for Abraham and his wife. I will ratify my covenant with you. Now it is by myself. Before it was, if you, then I will. It was a bilateral covenant. If you obey me, if you follow me, if you serve me, then I will do this. Now God by himself ratifies it and says, guess what? You proved You proved it. Your faith resulting in action has proved it, and therefore now it is on me. It is as good as done. Your descendants will be many. Abraham, can you count the stars in the sky? Uh, No. Well, that's how many descendants you will have. Can you count the the sand on the seashore? (laughs) No. That's how many descendants you will have. It's a done deal. It's on me now. 
But then it goes into this blessing on the nation of Israel. Because now in the same spot, the temple is erected and now the nation of Israel, the people of God, God's chosen people, have a place to offer up sacrifices to the Lord, pleasing aromas to Him so they can worship their one true, the one true living God. So He can be seen, so He can provide for them in that place. But it gets to you and I as well. Notice this. Notice this, because the second part of this promise, at the middle part of verse 17, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now some might say your offspring of their enemies. I believe it's a singular. And I believe James talks about it when he says now he, uh, that, that uh, God was promising Abraham an, an offspring, a single offspring that would possess the gate of his enemies. Namely, let me just say it this way. I believe he's talking about Jesus. Through your lineage will come this offspring, this one who by him in his death on the cross and resurrection will Crash down the gates of the enemy. Crash down the gate of sin and death. The the, the stronghold of sin and death will be torn away because of what your offspring, this one, is going to do. He's going to come and he's going to break through. And notice verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God provided. He provided for Abraham and Sarah. He provided for the nation of Israel. He provided for you and for me because of his active faith. So I'm calling you to do something today. Some of you might be here and you've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never looked to what He has done on the cross and and realized that He died for me and He rose again to give me eternal life. Some of you in this place have never come to that point where you have faith to begin with, let alone active faith. And so for you... I invite you to put your faith in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. You see, we like to work. We like to think that we can be good enough and do good enough things and give enough and, 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 and do all these things to earn God's favor. But none of those work, the Bible says. That's why Jesus died on the cross for you and me. Because we are helplessly, hopelessly lost without him. He died on the cross. And all he asks is not that we work for it. Not that we somehow pick ourselves up and and get right before we come to him. No. There's a song Billy Graham used to sing, right? At the end of his, 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 uh, oh, for crying out loud, crusades, just as I am. And that's what we're saying. Jesus died for us just as we are. So what do we do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus and you will be saved, the Bible says. So maybe you're here today and you need to start a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you have put your trust in Jesus. But let me ask you this. In this last week, has it been active? Has it been active? If I were to look at your life this last week, would I be able to say, oh, there's faith right there. He acted in faith. Oh, look at what she did. Oh, my word. That is faith right there. 
See, see, if you and I are going to have a kind of faith that brings God's provision, God's blessing in our life, it must be active, not dead. So let me ask you this. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, I want you to ask the Lord this question. Lord, what do you want me to do this week so that my faith is activated? I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have trusted in Him. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. But I sure haven't been living like I have faith in Him. And so, Lord, what do you want me to do this week to activate my faith? Because God's provision is there when we, in faith, act. God provides when we, in faith, act. Act. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and I just encourage you to ask him that question right now. Lord, what do you want me to do? What are you asking of me this week? We know it's not going to be to sacrifice your child like he called Abraham to do, but what is it that he's asking you to do? Maybe, maybe it is to use your gifts, your talents, to sacrifice your time and get involved in some sort of ministry. Maybe he's been asking you for a while to go on a, on a ministry trip like Dave Colburn is, and, and you've been fearful, or you, you've had this excuse or that excuse, and maybe today he's saying that's how you activate your faith. Maybe it is in tithing. Maybe it is in being that husband that God's called you to be, one who loves his wife without any conditions. Maybe it's as a wife he's calling you today to love your husband, to show him the respect and the honor. I don't know what it is today, but you know, and God will talk to you by his Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that today. Lord, I pray for anyone in this place who have never started this journey of faith. I pray that today would be the day that they would come to the point right now in their own heart where they would say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I receive him as my Savior, and I want to walk in faith. And maybe... Maybe there's some in this place who, who need to give up something. Who need to be willing to surrender something for you like Abraham was willing to surrender and give up his son Isaac. Lord, you know hearts. But I would just pray that you would help us this week not just to talk about our faith, not just to state in word only that we have faith, but to live it out so that we would find you to bless us with your providence, with your provision, rather. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the truth that we have in your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.